called foundation. And primarily from that verse in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul is reminding this church of the one true foundation in Jesus Christ and how everything comes from that and is built on that. Paul in this letter to this church in Corinth is again writing uh, to this a local group of believers, and, and it's always good to remind ourselves some of the things that are happening uh, in that context. Here's a young church that is trying to find their way, a young church that in many ways is immature and needs to grow up in faith, needs to understand more of how they live out this call of God that is upon them, how they live in their own spiritual gifts, and it's a church that has all kinds of immaturity that is happening because they're young. In many ways, you could kind of look at this church and label it as a bit of a mess. And oftentimes the church at Corinth is referred to in that way. But at least it was a church that had life. And it had all kinds of life. A person could never say that the church of Corinth was dead. It was uh, alive. One observer, one commentator on uh, the church of Corinth made the observation that in many ways it was like a church planter's dream. I mean, this was a church that would try things. This was a church that would just step into things. They had new believers from all kinds of walks of life. There was no transfer of memberships there. There was none of this conversation about, well, you know, in my previous church that I did things, this is how we did it. There's none of that happening there. I mean, it was a church that valued participation and not so much order, okay? And so they had all kinds of, of go- things going on. They participated and sometimes even a little bit too exuberantly. And you see that throughout the letter that is written to this church. They practiced and dove into things like communion. They worked on their spiritual gifts in all kinds of ways, whether it was tongues or prophecy or interpretation or any of the other ones that are listed. They almost seemed to flaunt them and try to outdo each other in the spiritual gifts in one way or another. And so they would experiment. They would try things. They would make mistakes enthusiastically, it seemed. You know, they would come together at communion and they would do that wrong as well too. People would be drinking too much wine and eating the food before everybody else got there and so Paul had to rebuke them for that. They would shop at the pagan temple meat markets. They were sexually promiscuous. They misunderstood and misapplied grace. They didn't really get how to do that, but they were trying to find their way. But they were engaged. They were there. They were passionate. They were trying to figure out this faith and so Paul is trying to get, you know, guide this young church in one way or another and, and help them to grow up. And they wanted to know the resurrected Jesus because they knew that their faith had consequences. They knew that in all the surrounding regions around them where they lived that there was all kinds of pressures and pagan gods and that if they declared that they were a follower of Jesus, it had implications that were very real. And so they wanted to know what they believed and how to live it out. They were a people that needed to grow in maturity. And so they were growing, and they were testing, and Paul was challenging. And so in many ways, although we look at this church that was a bit of a mess, it's a church that had so much life. It was a church that was stepping out in its mission. And we've talked about in these previous weeks, in this whole chapter 3, wrestles with this question of how do we grow up in the faith? How do we grow in increasing maturity as a church? And the importance of doing that, because... As we grow in maturity, it leads to unity in the church, and unity leads to God's mission. Instead of getting distracted by all these other things that really don't matter. We also see in this text that 
I think our human nature and our sinful nature pulls us in the direction of immaturity all the time. We're always being pulled in that direction of, of immaturity, it seems. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter how young you are. Doesn't matter how long you've been in the church. But I think our tendency is to be pulled in that direction of immaturity. It just looks differently. But where our selfishness starts to come out and we start to long for things of our own and our own preferences as opposed to the selflessness that needs to be there for the sake of others. So immaturity can be found in disorder and the reckless pursuit of all the things of the world. But immaturity can also be found in the stuffy religion of people who just go through the motions. And Paul saw that. And Paul's plea is to grow up in maturity in all the areas of how they think, how they worship, how they view leaders, how they test and build on the foundation of their faith, all of it. Last week, we looked at that verse 11 about one true foundation, and we asked the question, what is it that we build our lives on? What really is the foundation of our faith? And we also asked the question about how do we build? What are the materials that we use and how important that is as well? In other words, what is the object of our faith? Where does our faith get placed? And we asked that question that helps us to kind of focus that of where do we go when there's nowhere to go? A question that helps us to kind of clarify when we hit those places in life of nowhere to turn, nowhere to go, and it's like, where do we go in those moments? Who do we go to? What do we go to? As a test of our foundation and what we build our lives on. We also talked about the fact that even if we build on this foundation, we can do so with sketchy materials, materials that, that aren't very effective, that need to be placed on a foundation. In fact, even if you use good materials and you don't build it on a foundation, but you place it right on the ground, eventually that house will rot and fall. But even if you place and you start to build on a good foundation with materials that are not uh, worthy or not eternal value, as we talked about last week, then that too will be destroyed when it is tested. And so we talked about two ways to destroy a building is tamper with the foundation or build with inferior materials. Important questions for a church that is growing up. Important questions for individuals who are wanting to grow in their faith. And so today we look at the remaining text in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as Paul is pointing to this church and also pointing to our church and and saying to them with a passionate plea, he's saying to them, you know what? You are not just a collection of competing interests. You are not just a confederation of independent individuals going about your way in the work of the church. You are not that. But Paul is saying, you are a temple. You are the temple of God. He says, you are a unified assembly of faith-filled followers of Jesus on this mission that God has sent you to in the world. That's what he is pointing this church to, to lift their eyes beyond what they see and say, you are the temple of the living king. And you need to live differently. And it's a challenge for us as well. And the critical piece that Paul gets to is this idea that your gatherings are different. It's not just a gathering of like-minded people. It's not just like a service club that you have in your city. It's not like a, a country club where you gather with people who do similar activities. It's not like a law society where people are gathered around a common theme. He says that the difference is, is that you have the spirit of the living God within you. And that changes everything about who you are, about how you operate, about what's important to you. And so we read 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And Paul starts off this section, he says this, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God lives in you? Don't you realize this? And he says, God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And again, we've talked about the fact that just over the page, if you go to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians on verse 19, he makes the point that the Spirit of God lives within you singular as an individual. He says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? But now in this text, in chapter 3, he's saying to them, don't you realize that you as the corporate body, you as the church, that the Spirit of God lives in you and among you? And this truth that the power and the presence of God has changed location, that the power and the presence of God is now in these people, these people that follow the living Savior. And if you look back to the Old Testament and you see the people of Israel who came out of Egypt and they looked for the power and the presence of God and they followed this pillar of of fire at night and this pillar of cloud during the day and how the presence of God was there in that. And then also as they wandered in the wilderness and as God prepared his people, they built a tabernacle, this, this movable tent of meeting where they would meet God, where Moses would meet with God and it was this place of God meeting the people. And then eventually they built the Temple of Solomon, this incredible temple that was built there in Jerusalem, which was destroyed and then it was rebuilt again later. But this meeting place where the power and the presence of God was as the people went there to worship him. But then as we come to the New Testament, how on the cross when Jesus was crucified and when he died, and that image of the the curtain in the temple that was torn from top to bottom, and this separation of, of the people from the Holy of Holies was now, was now torn in two as it changed everything. Because now God was so approachable because his spirit was now among the people. And Jesus himself said to his disciples, he said, you know what, it's really good that I leave. I need to go because when I go, I will leave with you a counselor, an advocate. My spirit will be with you. My spirit will be in you. And again, the power and the presence of God and the location of that changing and in being among the people. And so this, again, is all in the background as Paul is saying this to these people. And he's saying, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you. And it changes things. Paul himself knew that. You flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, you see Paul himself talking about how it changes things for him. He said, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. And I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. And my message and my preaching were very plain. And rather than using clever and pervasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. And I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. So even for Paul, he's saying, even how I do ministry, it's, it's different. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit, it changes things. So the mature church embraces this truth, embraces this power of the Holy Spirit, and desires to know this God, this living one. In verse 17, Paul makes this interesting comment where it's a very strong rebuke, and he says, God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 
And you, and you get a sense of Paul's protective nature around the church. You get a sense of how he has this uh, desire to protect this church from anyone who would destroy it. And you see how he believes so strongly of how the church matters. And don't mess with the local church. Because this is the temple of God. And he says, you know what? If anyone who destroys that temple, God will destroy them. Strong words. And we look at that and we say, wow. I mean, that, what an awful thing that, that people would actually try to destroy uh, the church. And we see that in different places in the world. We see that where there's all kinds of persecution that happens in a whole variety of ways. People who deliberately and violently try to destroy everything. We call them terrorists. Who destroy hope. Who destroy peace. And yes, try to destroy the church as well. So Paul is speaking to those who deliberately try to destroy the church, and he's speaking a very strong word of, a, of rebuke to them. But it causes me to also think about how, how else do we do that, maybe in subtle ways. Maybe where neglect happens. Going back to the building imagery, and, and a, a vacant building or a neglected building st- soon starts to see the effects of that. It starts to become destroyed in one way or another. Or building with substandard materials in ways that it won't last and it's not something that's eternal. Or where somebody, you know, shifts from having this gift of a critical mind to more of a critical spirit where all they can see is everything that's wrong with the church. It just starts to erode and to take uh, hits after, one after another. It can happen in all kinds of different ways, but this challenge where Paul just says, don't mess with the church. Don't mess with the unity of the church. Build towards that unity because we have a bigger purpose and a bigger mission. Don't get caught up in the small things. Paul says in this text that the mature church or the maturing church is one that is fueled by the Spirit of God. But you know, any ability that we have to live by the Spirit of God or to move away from our sinful nature is only because of the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives. We can't do it on our own because, as I said earlier, there is this constant pull, I think, to immaturity in all of its different forms. We naturally go that way. When we become a follower of Jesus Christ and when we pray and when we submit our lives to him, Scripture says that the Spirit of God comes into our lives and changes us. We are a new creation, also being formed into a new creation. But it's also this reality that Paul is speaking to in this text that that we can have the Spirit, but we can live in a way that the Spirit is not in charge in any way. We can even use our spiritual gifts in ways that don't allow, really, the Spirit to work or to be submitted to the Spirit. That's one of the themes that is throughout this entire letter that comes through in 1 Corinthians. So we need to live with the Spirit in charge and ask the question, how is it that we allow the Spirit to truly work in our lives to control us and to change our minds and to change our actions and how we live together as the church. In verse 18 and 20, Paul goes on to say this. He says, Stop deceiving yourselves. If you think that you are wise by this world's standards, you need to become a fool to be truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. And as the scriptures say, he traps the wise in the snare of their own cleverness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He knows that they are worthless. So again, Paul is saying, when you live by the Spirit it will never make sense to the world. It will be seen as absolute foolishness to the world. It is a very different 
kind of wisdom at work. And again, if you flip back and look at chapter 1, verse 24 to 28, Paul is speaking of that earlier, and he says this, But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that the few, that, um, few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. And God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. A little further on in in chapter 2, verse 13, he picks up on this again. And he says, when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit using the Spirit's Word to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. So Paul, again and again, is just talking about this truth that that the things of the Spirit will always seem really foolish to the world. It doesn't make sense. It just seems to be a disconnect. And I know I've, I've talked to enough young adults who are in university to know that there's probably no, no greater place where that happens, where you're confronted with that, than sitting in university classrooms where you listen to different people speak about the reality in their mind of there is no God, God isn't real, God isn't true, there are no moral absolutes, and anything that you come there believing just seems to be foolishness in the eyes of the world. Which is why we need to pray for our young adults and those on our university campuses who are facing this continuously. There is no greater place where you see this happen every day. And so we see the reality of this in different parts of our lives. But Paul is saying that you need to realize that to live by the Spirit is different. When you live by the Spirit, you see things in a different light. You see things in a different way. Truth looks different. Living by the Spirit is the greatest wisdom of all. You know, the teachings of Jesus seem backward as well. When you look at Jesus' teaching, he said, you know what, if you want to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. He talks about taking up your cross, denying yourself, focusing on eternity, not now. All these things that are so countercultural. He's saying... It's not about immediate satisfaction. It's not about yourself and your own personal desires. It's about denying yourself. He says you need to be born again and become like a little child. Jesus says the greatest in the kingdom is actually the servant and the least of all. On and on and on. It's no wonder that it's been called the upside-down kingdom. And Paul is talking to that again here in this text, and he's saying there is a wisdom in the world that is not truly wisdom. And we need to see the world and what is going on in a different way through the Holy Spirit. And he's not saying that we don't pursue knowledge. He's not saying that as Christians you check your brains at the door. He's not saying that at all. Pursue those things. Understand those things. He speaks about that in many other places because this is all God's truth. But the way that people understand who God is and how to apply these truths is so different. He's just saying, don't get caught up in this faulty foundation of human wisdom because it will fail you. 
And becoming a fool, as Paul talks about in this passage, is not about mediocrity. It's not about the lack of thought or the pursuit of truth in the world, but it's about accepting these deep, often paradoxical teachings of Jesus. And to be a mature church that is willing to live in these tensions of these things that seem to be pulling in opposite directions that we've been talking about in these previous weeks. But that is the maturity of a church fueled by His Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 21 to the end of the chapter, he says, so don't boast about following a particular human leader for everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or the present and the future. Everything belongs to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you. So Paul is saying, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the spirit of God within you and all of this belongs to you. What more do you need? Why are you putting your hope in human leaders? You have Jesus and his spirit living within you. You have it all. He says, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, life and death are yours. You don't have to fear death anymore. He's saying that those who don't have the spirit, they often seem to be buffeted by the world and they live in this fear of death and they live with this question of what is the ultimate purpose of life? And he's saying, you don't have that problem. You're not wondering about that. You understand God's bigger story. You understand God's bigger purposes. You see it in the pages of Scripture. You understand this story of God and how you fit into this story. That there is a past, a present, and a future, and that you are part of it. So he says you have it all. Jesus was, was killed on a cross, put in a tomb, and overcame the grave, and he overcame death that you might have life. You don't have to fear death anymore. You can live very differently because of that. In fact, you can now truly live. And so Paul is saying to them, you have it all. You don't have to worry about these things that the world gets caught up in and these things that will distract you from the bigger picture of God. And that's part of the maturity that he is calling this church to and us to, to understand these things and to raise our eyes and to lift our eyes and to look beyond the immediate and to see that there's a bigger picture here. So how do we do that? How do we allow the Spirit of God that control in our lives, both on an individual basis and also on a corporate basis as a church? How do we live more by the power of the Spirit? It's a very fair question. But I think probably the primary way that we do that is spoken of throughout Scripture. It's the key to accessing the power of God. It's available to every single one of us. And it's the power of prayer. Because you see, prayer is this posture, and we talked about postures a couple of weeks ago. Postures are those things that other people see and notice in us more than we do. And yet, Scripture speaks to postures of prayer, whether it's in Timothy, of of men with holy hands lifted high so that they're not actually fighting with each other but praying to God, of of a prostrate posture of prayer, of kneeling prayer, of all kinds of different physical postures, yes. But I'm speaking more about what is our inclination What is our quickness? What is our kind of default mode? What is the first thing that we go to when we face challenges in life? How does that happen on an individual basis? How does that happen at Forest Grove Community Church? What do other people notice? When our family gathers together and our family goes through crisis, what do we do? When we meet together as a small group, what is our first inclination to do? Are we people of prayer? Is that our immediate posture? Is that what sort of comes to us when we want to invite 
the Spirit of God to be at work in our lives in a more powerful way. And as was mentioned earlier in the service, this idea of that when we pray, it's this acknowledgement in those moments that God is first and we are second. And as we're involved in using our gifts and using the way that God has wired us to be involved as he invites us to in the kingdom of God as builders and as gardeners and to do the work of the kingdom in all the ways with all of the passion that he has given us. When we go to prayer, it's that moment that we take our hands off and we just sort of acknowledge, God, I can't do this. I can do nothing apart from you. And we invite the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to do a work that we could never do. And so prayer is what releases God's work in the world, and for whatever reason in the mystery of God, he has invited us to pray and to respond to the prayers of his people so that we would be a people who have a constant posture of prayer. Paul says the mature church is going to be a church that does that. The mature church is going to be fueled by the Holy Spirit, accessed by our prayers as we submit our lives and our desires and our wants and our gifts and our wiring to the living God. God, you do your work. We will do our part, but there is just, I cannot bring transformation. Only you can make it grow. And prayer acknowledges that. And it changes everything. Prayer is probably another one of those things that is seen as absolute foolishness to the world. Makes no sense. And yet it is so central to the mature church. I was thinking about the message this week, one of the thoughts that struck me was, what is it that makes Jesus mad? When you look at the Gospels and you look at the story of Jesus, when does Jesus get angry? And it seems to me that there are two specific areas that Jesus got angry that relate to what we've been talking about today. And the first one is, well, I mean, you would think that Jesus would get angry with the very, uh, the most sinful of people, like, you know, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, those who extorted money out of other people. And yet, as you read the Gospels, you realize that, no, Jesus actually had a lot of grace for those people, a lot of love for those people, a lot of passion for those people. He would challenge them and rebuke them, but he would also go to their homes and eat with them and be with them and spend time with them and love them in all kinds of ways. He got angry at certain types of religious people, the people who went through the motions and the people who you know, had a lot of religious gatherings and did a lot of the right things on the outside, but they were very empty and hollow on the inside. He tended to get quite angry at those people. The other places that Jesus got angry was when he went into the temple and it was no longer a place of prayer. He went into the temple and it was just a marketplace, completely void of prayer. And he got angry and cleared this out and says, this is to be a house of prayer for my father. So again, this call to the mature church to grow up in our faith and to be people of prayer in all seasons, at all times, and praying in all kinds of different ways. Would you stand and join me as I lead us in a time of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, again for these texts that instruct us, that challenge us, that at times can rebuke us, that can convict us, that change us. Lord, I pray for softened hearts for each one of us. That through your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to hear what we need to hear. And God, that we would live responsive lives. And Lord, if there are those here today who have never given their lives to you, and today is that day, 
that they would just in the quietness of their hearts just pray that prayer and say, Lord, come into my life and change me. I acknowledge that you are Savior and you are the only uh, response to my sin that can make a difference in this world. You would forgive me and free me and set me on a new path and make me whole. And Lord, for some of us, we've been going through the motions for a long time and feel pretty hollow on the inside. And I pray, God, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would do a very unique work in those hearts. God, where there is layers of hurt and mistrust or offense or whatever the case may be. And God, that we would forgive and release and receive your forgiveness and in doing so, be able to forgive and bless others. And God, I pray that you would help us to be a people of prayer. Lord, in our families, in our individual lives, in our small groups, in the various settings that we are, that we would be quicker to pray than to talk about the situation. God, forgive us for how much we talk about things and how little we pray about them. And God, help us to be people whose posture and whose initial response is so immediately to just pray, that we would pray for one another, that we would be willing to receive prayer from others. And God, that we would have many, many of those moments where we would grow and mature by just taking our hands off for those moments and just submitting to the work of your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, would you just come into our lives as individuals? Would you come into our church and would you move in ways and do more than we could ask or imagine? We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.